giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Sandra Richter, co-founder and CEO of Sufa. Sandra, thank you for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much, Chad. So you're not originally from Boston. (laughs) It feels like I'm original at this point in time. But yeah, I moved to Boston about six years ago. Mm -hmm. I had no expectations, really. I wanted to go to MIT. And Mm -hmm. so Boston for me was a big MIT. And so Mm -hmm. when I got in, I like packed my suitcase, shut down my life in Berlin and moved no questions asked. And then I arrived and I was like, wow. This is a really nice city. It has like a river and people. Had you even visited before? <laughs> I had never visited oh, before. Wow. So this was really a jump into into the cold water. Yeah. But in in the end, it was really jumping into a very welcoming family of of MIT Media mm-hmm. Labs community. Yeah. So you were a member of the MIT Media Lab. Yes. And at what point did the idea for Sufa and we should at this point also <laughs> say what it actually is sure. come about? So I feel like it is so hard to describe how the idea for a company developed because at the end of the day, a company evolves over time and it's not like you're under the shower and you have this like horika moment mm-hmm. where like ding, 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 lights go on. And I feel like that sometimes maybe happens for a physical equation you're trying to solve or, you know, for a bigger problem. But SUFA was really the result of a lot of people's work um, coming together, thinking through how to make better products for cities. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I would describe SUFA, too. And and I can actually tell you the original story of how the name came about, because that's really like one of these like moments uh, I was actually sitting in the park uh, in around Central Square in Cambridge, close close to school, and we've been really trying to find a good name. Like naming mm-hmm. is so hard. So you had you knew what you were going to be doing in in, in general, yeah. but you didn't have the name. Yeah. So we had a, at the time a solar powered park bench where people could charge their phone, mm-hmm. and. A lot of opinions about, you know, oh, you need to make your company sound really big and venture backable. And like our incorporated name was Changing Environments. So like Mm -hmm. not that sexy. And so I was sitting in the park with my partner, Ian, who's also a startup guy and always has great ideas. And so we were brainstorming. And then at some point I was like, smart urban furniture appliances, SUFA. And so... Immediately fell in love with the sound of it almost, Mm -hmm. but then did some uh, Googling because I'm big about search engine optimization. And I was like, whoa, SUFA means like storm. And there was like pictures of like firefighter or or jets. It was not good. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, no, how sad. The name I was just so excited about is not going to work out. But then companies are a result of a lot of people's work. A friend of mine, Lila, who's also a, a founder out of MIT, was standing in front of the media lab and we were just chatting and I told her about it and she's like, why don't you just take the U and turn it into two O's and make it the Google way? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really how how SUFA got started. And then a lot of ideas from a lot of people are really bringing the company to life. Um, The company has really evolved. So starting from 
basically like a infrastructure piece that we would sell to cities. We actually moved now to really a network of billboards. Mm -hmm. um, so our newest shtick really is like to change how we think about out-of-home advertising. So when you walk across any major street, you'll walk by a lot of bus shelters with like big brand advertising, um, and those shelters are becoming more and more digital. And I think that's a huge opportunity now to rethink the way our public surfaces are, are used. And so the SUFA sign network, which is completely off-grid and we're using electronic paper, which is another MIT invention um, from e-ink, to be able to really reframe this almost as like the 21st century bulletin board. And so anybody's able to post. You can go to talk.sufa.co and post your event or your comic or an advertising for your podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> to the public right away. And I think back to your original question, you know, how did the idea come about? The company's really evolved over time and we're very aware of user-centered design and agile development. And so we, over the last four years, have been getting a lot of feedback from users of the city, right? Mm -hmm. The mayor's offices and friends and family. And so it's been really turning into an amazing platform that changes every day and almost now is like a white paper. It's like a canvas. Anybody mm -hmm. can really start doing something with it. So you're, as a company then, pretty focused exclusively on the sign and the sign network at this point? Yeah. And we also, so one of the things that I, that I really learned over the last four years, somewhat painfully, is that when everybody tells you you need to focus, they're actually right. <laughs> <laughs> I always was a big you know, believer in, I'm going to challenge the status quo, and I'm the rebel. And like at MIT, people you know, actually embrace the disobedience. We even have a disobedience award. And so I thought I, you know, I could do it all. Mm -hmm. And so with the SUFA benches, we were actually in 125 cities. We were in three countries, so like sounded great on paper. But what happened in reality was we didn't even have the bandwidth to really like take good care of each and every one of our loved products and mm -hmm. the, the communities that we're in. And so with the SUFA Sign Network, we're really focusing on three markets right now, Boston, Las Vegas, and Atlanta. And uh, we're placing the SUFA signs into up-and-coming neighborhoods. So in Boston, we're in the Fenway and the Seaport and Alston, but also in Ashmont because we want to make sure that, you know, where, where people live, work, and play. Mm -hmm. And in, in Atlanta, we're in, we're in great locations uh, where the artists live and, you know, all the buzz is happening. And, uh, and we've seen a lot of traction from people signing up to the sign network and advertisers or brands basically becoming sponsors of that community platform. So I kind of describe it almost like Instagram or the Facebook of the real world. Mm -hmm. What is the business model? Who's getting the signs? Mm -hmm. Is it the public or is it usually private or a community or ever, all of the above? Yeah, I mean, it's a very great question. So the real pioneer in out-of-home advertising is a company called GC Deco, which is a Paris-based company. And once upon a time, cities needed bus shelters. Mm -hmm. And Mr. G.C. Deco wanted to hang out posters to make money. And Yvonne he 
crafted what today is a multi-billion dollar industry. I've seen that name everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I just never knew how to pronounce it before. So thank you for that. You've taught me something today around how to pronounce that name. Yeah, G.C. Decaux. So it's, it's actually his name, Jean-Francois Decaux. Mm -hmm. That might be the son. It's a family-owned mm -hmm. business, which is really cool, actually. And they're actually also the ones who invented bike share. In, in Paris with uh, the, the Velip, which was one of the first bike sharing programs um, that was brought into the world, really. So I'm going to answer your question about the business model in a second, but as I'm kind of on that train of thought, what for me is really amazing is that GCDECO, as, as a pioneer in, in out-of-home advertising, has really been able to bring infrastructure to our cities that is really needed and finding a business model that allows those systems to be usable and upkept and, you know, pushing the boundaries of, of innovation and, and technology. And there's a Harvard Business School case study about it, of course, why wouldn't there be, mm -hmm. um, on how that business model came about. And then later, Clear Channel and Lamar, which are the big U.S. players, um, how they continued on, on that trend. And how now SUFA is continuing on mm -hmm. that trend. So basically, we design and manufacture the SUFA sign, which is not an easy task, even though it looks... Uh, more low tech because it's you know it's electronic paper, mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of like a poster. Super beautiful. Can read it in the sunlight. I have a question: Is it bolted down? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Looking at the pictures, I was like, I hope this is bolted down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it is bolted down and PE stamped. So we had a professional engineer uh, do a lot of math on wind directions of any kind. Okay. Um, and uh, basically state by state, you have to get a, a permit, which is mm. pretty intense. They are bolted down. However, the most amazing thing is it is not connected to the grid. Mm -hmm. So all digital infrastructure you see in cities usually has to find its way to a power source. Um, and that means a lot of things. One, the permitting is ridiculously complicated. Mm -hmm. So going through public improvement commission meetings and, you know, public meetings are not always the most efficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Plus, you know, dealing with the utilities company, et cetera. And then once you're digitalizing power through through the grid, oftentimes you also um, include fiber. So you're looking at a very high cost, what I would call a digitalization of a mm -hmm. location. Mm -hmm. And so the SUFA sign is a 10 minutes bolts in the ground affair. So you're really now starting to think about agile, movable infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like in the internet, you know, we, we optimize constantly. It's like when we started, you know, the internet was not such a great place. Now, <laughs> thanks to, to cookies and tracking, we actually know where people are going, what they're liking, and, and we're optimizing our experience constantly. In the real world, that's really complicated. And the real world is designed by a lot of people with fear, right? Fear of vandalism, fear of, you know, durability, of cost. And so we're pushing the boundary on let's rethink public infrastructure to some extent. You know, we, we started with the bench, which a lot of people were like, wow, it looks like it's coming from like different planet. Bench I can charge my phone on and like it has sensors inside. So people were like really excited about this. And now with the sign, it's a, it's a similar story. You, you place it, put a fuse in and it connects to the internet we are via wireless backhaul mm -hmm. and then it can pull real-time transit information and update every minute and it pulls content that people upload and it's kind of like a, a little technology marvel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks to a lot of you know components that 
are available now. So it's the largest electronic paper display that's ever been in the world, invented at, at MIT as well. And funny story, actually, the CEO of E-Ink is now on our board. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really you know, pushing and, and, and supporting the ubiquitous usage of a very you know, low-power platform. So the sign itself has a battery in it? It does. And in Boston, we're going to probably have to exchange the battery a couple of times in the winter because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. days are getting short and it's getting gray. Yeah. So we, we worked with another startup in the area on a solar charge controller, which is very efficient. We mm-hmm. actually have a flexible solar panel that's very efficient. And we have lead acid batteries in the unit. They're really great to recycle. They're really well understood, and they work in very hot and very cold conditions, which is not always the case with with lithium ion mm-hmm. batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and they're heavy, and we have space, <laughs> so it's you know it's it's not a bad thing in our case. Yeah. And so, and now I'm kind of going to circle back to your business model question. We own the signs, so we basically provide this amenity to the public right away. We pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we take care of it, so we have you know folks going every week and checking that it's working. We're all awesome. I have to say, like the amount of people who are working on our public right away, like I can't give them enough kudos for like the the time and effort is being put in into you know what I would consider DPW, so like Department of Public Works or all of the guys mm-hmm. collecting our trash. Sometimes I think we all need to give a moment of thanks for for all those systems running smoothly. Yeah. I was at Burning Man last year, and they had DBW, and then I was like, wow, they basically built the whole city, and mm-hmm. they get glorified. And mm-hmm. I'm like, we should really go and you know, high-five our DPW teams. Um, but so we have actually our own, um, we try to call them SUFA rabbits based on TaskRabbit. I don't know. Yeah. What, what, I don't know what you think about that. It sounds a little weird, huh? Yes. <laughs> so we might need a new, <laughs> new name. If you have ideas, let me know. Um, but we have uh, folks who go around and, and take care of, of the infrastructure because there is, you know, there is, there's always someone who's going to grab a Sharpie and mm-hmm. write a love note instead of posting it through they the They could app. just post it. They just exactly. don't even realize. Yeah. However, I have to say what's really interesting is people do not vandalize the screen. So they oh, do, really? yeah. They, hmm. like whenever there's messages and that was the same on the Sufa benches, they're like aside from the solar panel or anything critical, and they're actually mainly positive messages. Hmm. So, There's something there. There's something there. Once upon a time on a bench that was with a nail polish, pink nail polish, it said something like, thank you for sending me this bench. It was a gift from heaven. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, when you're out of battery, you're very thankful when yeah. you're in the middle of the night waiting for an Uber yeah. and you can charge, yeah. you charge your phone. So this notion of like, uh, you know, giving giving to the communities is is really important to us. Mm-hmm. And um, so, however, you know, we're a for-profit business. Uh, we're venture-backed. Uh, we have great investors who are very supportive of, you know, our mission and who are very interested in finding the right balance between a good business model, social impact, and like not being scared of hardware and like having impactful design. So I'm, I'm really lucky that we have a great community of, of, of people. And Nicholas Negroponte, actually, the, the founder of the Media Lab, once said to me, pre-SUFA, in his mind, good businesses have social impact, good business model, and great industrial design. Mm-hmm. He, he loves, you know, design. So, so that's what we're aspiring really to to do. And 
to the business model part, we're an advertising-supported network. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we work with brands, and our idea is, and and we're proving that out to the point. You know, you craft your company as you go. The idea is that it's almost like advertising as a service. So you kind of pay a monthly fee to almost be like a member of that like neighborhood talk. Mm-hmm. And you're more like a sponsor of, you know, this infrastructure and your content is actually relevant to the community. So uh, one of our great early adopters and an amazing brand in my mind is Be Good, who doesn't like their their burgers. And each one of their locations actually has different produce from different farmers. Right. So how cool. Now they can put on the signs in that neighborhood like where the daily produce comes from. It's like super interesting information and it's advertising. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like almost like advertorial, I would call it, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, similar story, uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra is one of our early adopters and putting events up in a neighborhood. Great. And you can change them. So there's, you know, you can keep it up to date. Like, Everybody knows the bulletin boards and, you know, the yoga right. studios when you walk in and they're like half of the pieces of paper are not relevant or like a month ago or the design is not great. So that's a huge opportunity. And I mean, I got a lot of pushback in the beginning. He's like, what? You want anybody to be able to post into the public right away? Are you nuts? And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Remember the time when you were so scared of Web 2.0? Yeah. When did you raise your VC funding? So I've raised three rounds. My first venture round um, was from Atlas Ventures at the time, mm-hmm. called Accomplice Now. They've been really supportive, so they gave me my first term sheet, um, mm-hmm. which was really exciting. Exciting and stressful moment. Like when you have that first term sheet ever for like a priced round and you know, you're negotiating over like the the dollar value on your company that's just in the beginning. It's mm-hmm. it's it's both thrilling and scary. So that that was uh, together then with E14 Fund, which is a fund that, that came um, to support Media Lab companies, but then also angels around town um, that were really supportive, some super angels, some smaller ones, some angel groups. And then with the company change that's what i was going to ask was how much work or you know negotiation or communication did you need to do to bring your early investors along for the ride from going from a bench to the sign yeah yeah and i mean really the bench was the vision there was also a big data platform right so mm-hmm. being able to measure pedestrian flow in an anonymous way for the first time that would allow you know, improvement of, of urban planning. There was a lot of hopes and dreams in smart city and in big data platforms. And I think, at least from my understanding, the industries kind of hit a little bit of a reality check there. Because at the end of the day, you know, data is only data. You have to turn it into information. You have to, like, actually make it usable. You need infrastructure to to react to that, right? So we did a big project with New York City Parks where we measured the, the usage of a bridge that was, you know, a million dollar project to, you know, connect the Bronx and, and Manhattan. I was super excited about it. And the data show that a lot of people like didn't use the bridge was new. And so then I was like, hey, cool. Why don't you get like Chris Doe or some artists and like put colorful umbrellas across the bridge and like see if people come. And then once they've been there, will they come back and will they start using it? And let's like prototype the real world. Nobody has budgets for that. Nobody has time for that. And so it was for me 
I'm still hoping that this is something we're going to do in the future. Like we need way more flexible and adaptive systems in our city. Mm -hmm. I love in Germany when they close down, you know, entire streets for Sundays so that mm -hmm. kids can go and play outside. That's like one example of, you know, agile development in, in the real world. But um, it, it was definitely a, a shift that had to be made and one that came very natural. And even though the business model is very different, it almost feels more like a product range extension. Mm -hmm. And we're able to leverage all of the connections we've made in government with great mayors and, and their teams, um, really pushing the envelope. And then we built a very complex system to use solar, to mm -hmm. <laughs> running 24-7 and uh, using a wireless backhaul for constant communication. And so all of that technology is basically now in the SUFA sign. So Steve Jobs, I think, and I mean, now it's kind of corny to quote Steve Jobs, but I'm going to do it anyway. He once said, uh, looking back, you can start seeing the patterns and the, you know, the red thread, he calls mm -hmm. it. And I feel like that's true. Like in the moment of time, there were a lot of moments where like, oh my God, we're, we're making this decision and and scared of, of making a decision. However, you always have to make decisions, otherwise you're standing still. Mm -hmm. um, but when I now look back over the last four years of SUFA, I'm like, oh yeah, that made sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, still with a lot of question marks for the future, obviously. Yeah. You know, the way I've come to think about it over the last few years is the separation between purpose and business model or even like mission statement. Mm -hmm. And like you you started our conversation today pretty clearly stating like the purpose mm -hmm. of improving cities. And you can do that through lots of different ways. That might be different businesses around that. But with the clarity of purpose, you can keep on moving forward. As a founder, does that help propel you forward and say like I have to keep on doing this? Like <laughs> Yes, this might have been a failure, but I have to get up tomorrow yeah. and do that. Otherwise, like I'll never achieve yeah. the purpose, not the business. Like the yeah. business sort of comes along. Yeah, I mean, I think most founders, and I would include myself in that, there's like this unexplainable resilience. Mm -hmm. Whenever something kicks you and you're down, the next morning, you got to get back up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so from a founder's perspective, it is a really interesting journey going from founder to CEO, I have to say. And I do think that that is two different things. Mm -hmm. You know, as a CEO is hired by the company. The CEO gets hired by the board of directors. I could be fired, which is a crazy thing to think about when it's your baby, right? Mm -hmm. But that's kind of when you're going to build a, a C-Corp, right? It's its own entity. And now that we have, you know, a big team, like, I feel very, you know, obviously the company wouldn't exist without me, but it's now its own thing, right? And so I, I feel very indebted of doing good for the company and living up to the expectation and learning every mm -hmm. day of how to, be, how to be a better, better CEO. And I take that very serious because I think it's a, it's a huge responsibility that you need to, you know, a lot of people who mm -hmm. look up to you are follow you, which is both a, a gift and sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, very challenging. You have co-founders. I do. Yeah. And they're awesome. And speaking of your role as CEO, like how did you navigate what each of your, you and your co-founders would do as you were getting started and then as you evolved? Mm. Was that an explicit conversation that you had with each other or did you fall into natural roles based on your previous work? How did that come about? It kind of 
happened quite naturally. At the end of the day, when you're building a venture-backed company, so well, first of all, we had that conversation, and I remember this day very well. We were sitting in the kitchen. It was kind of similarly gray and rainy outside as it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like typical, you know, October October weather in, in Boston. And we were making tea and having cookies, and we we're like, okay, what does success look like? Like, is success we're going to have a piece in the MoMA? Is success we're going to have millions of something coming from a factory floor in China? Is success building a big company? And for me, it's been building a big company. And I think there's a lot of tech giants out there right now that really, and we may or may not notice it very clearly, but they're really framing society and like who we are and they're framing the agenda and the media. And I think a lot of them are doing a great job. Um, but I also feel like there's uh, underrepresentation of females in particular at that level of the top that are very vocal and in this like very like quick tech kind of scene. And I think too, that has an influence on the cultures of those companies, right? Um, so my co-founder, Yuta, uh, just had a wonderful baby girl uh, 10 months ago. Congratulations, Yuta. <laughs> Congratulations, Yuta and Ben. And we're now, as a company, figuring out what does that mean, right? Like, how do we want to make sure that we have an environment that allows, you know, the working mother to be successful? Mm-hmm. These are things that are, are equally as important to me in terms of purpose. So it's one, the purpose for, you know, having impact and, and changing the world. But um, the other is also like being able, and I feel very fortunate to be able to do that, is to be to build a culture mm-hmm. and to build a team. And it's not just all goody two shoes at all at all times. And there's, you know, the carrot and the stick, so to speak. Um, and I would say at Sufa, we're, we're definitely, it's a challenging working environment. Like you need to work hard, but we also give a lot back. And, you know, we do team outings. We rent one of the Boston Harbor Islands in, in the summer and all go. And we do fun things like Whiskey Wednesday. and um, mm-hmm. So shaping the culture is, is really um, important to both Utah and, and I and, and being there for each other. And so that's a, an important piece. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, of culture, how, how big is the team now at Sufa? It always feels like it's ginormous because <sighs> we're... Everything's relative. <laughs> Everything's relative, exactly. I mean, one thing that becomes very clear to me in a, in a company like Sufa um, and I hope a lot of our the folks we work with are going to listen to this podcast. Uh, so lots of shout outs, basically. But I see our contract manufacturer as part of our team. Mm-hmm. They're making our products. They, right. you know, they're on our on our calls, and and they, you know, they, they care almost as much as we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, they post on the signs as well. Right. Uh, the same is true for our lawyer, mm-hmm. our accounting firm. Um, so, it, it, and then plus, you know, the investors and all all folks. So, there's a lot of people involved. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Even though the core team that's there on a day to day basis is still under fifty. Yeah. And how quickly have you been growing the team? Unfortunately, we've done a lot of shrinking while we've done growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really one of the toughest things, being the person who makes the call. Mm-hmm. Most companies don't go smoothly. Mm-hmm. And so you have moments where you're running out of money. You have moments where there's conflict. And so 
we had a couple of scary moments in between. And so we, from, you know, growing, then also had to cut and then grow again. And that's not easy. Mm-hmm. And so Sufa has definitely been a company that has changed a lot over time. And so the people have changed a lot over time. Everybody has left their mark on it. And, you know, I'm thankful for everyone that was part of the team and, and still is at the team. A lot of folks are actually there since the beginning, like Ed Krafsik, who's part of, I would consider him basically now part of the founding team. Like he started as an intern while he was doing his MBA at BU. And then he basically finished school in the evenings and uh, turned out to be like one of our biggest sales mm-hmm. talents. He came from like an urban planning background. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of have a really good like leadership core. And I would say overall, we're now on a very high pace growth trajectory, which is new. So I would say one of the reasons also why we why we looked at the business model in, in detail and trying to understand like how can we really scale, right? Because at the end of the day, VCs are in the business <laughs> of helping you scale a business. Mm-hmm. And I want to build a big company. So like how how do you do that when suddenly you're realizing, hmm, Selling benches is never really going to have the hockey stick you're looking for. Mm-hmm. The data product was not going to have that mm-hmm. hockey stick. However, now we're really seeing traction, and you can feel it. It feels different. Mm-hmm. It's like suddenly people are signing up to Sufa Talk. They're posting. We're user growth. You know, we have a lot of inbounds for for brands. We have big brand partnerships at this moment in time. We had uh, neighborhoods in Atlanta go to the mayor's office, a 311 department, and ask, why does my neighborhood not have the SUFA sign yet? Mm-hmm. And so that's really great to, to see and people posting their posts onto social media. And so there's a lot of buzz right now. So we're in a, in a real like growth phase. Mm-hmm. I think long term, you'll see the hockey stick. But in the in-between phases, you, you always have to kind of navigate. Yeah. As someone who cares a lot about culture and the company you're building, how did that affect you or the team and your culture needing to scale back? Well, definitely we know we can handle a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's an important learning, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're always going to have setbacks no matter what. Being able to recover is what makes you stronger. I actually had an ACL tear beginning of this year in in meniscus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Two for one at our uh, Sufa ski trip um, in Vermont. I slipped on ice. Oh, I'm sorry. And I'd never had like a limitation like that. That was the first time ever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this sucks. And recovery wasn't easy. But, you know, now I'm now I'm recovered. And, and I think I'm a, to some extent, I now have more empathy for other people when mm-hmm. they have, you know, physical limitations of any sort. And I think it made me grow as a as a person. And so I think that that same notion is, is is true for that. And, you know, we had this phase, I think, maybe two years ago where suddenly everybody started about failure and how mm-hmm. good failure is and how great it is to learn from it. And then there were a couple of people who said, like, it's way better. I think it was Jeff Bezos who said, failure sucks. I just want to win. Right. And <laughs> also true. But at the end of the day, if, if you look at the ecosystem here in the city, but then also across the U.S. and probably worldwide, as a startup founder, as a CEO, even as an employee in an early stage company, a lot of things you can't predict. Mm-hmm. And so things will always happen. And it's always about how do you how do you deal with it? 
And if you look at some of the biggest success stories that we have in, in Boston, they've also gone through, through ups and downs. And so that's been a big learning for me, and I think that's why I'm also open about saying this because mm-hmm. if it doesn't sound great. Ooh, we had to scale back. But now we're growing, just so everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think it helps knowing, you know, that other people have gone through this as well. Mm-hmm. I remember very, very early days, I, like, felt so alone to some extent with a lot of the problems that we had. And I had self-doubt because I was like, oh, wow, like, am I just, you know, not good enough or can I not build a unicorn company and a lot of Mm self-criticism. But then, you know, I learned more and more that everybody was going through the same thing. And at the end of the day, we're alive and kicking. And we're very fortunate to, you know, being able to build great products and make an impact on the city and get to be an employer. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to help people live a great life. So it's all worth it in the end. Yeah. Having a long-term perspective, that's one of the things that ThoughtBot does and sounds like you're you're trying to have an impact on the world that is going to take a while. Yep. And I have to say, I warned all of my VCs. (laughs) So if any one of you is ever going to listen to this... uh, I remember I had this like amazing conversation with uh, one of our uh, investors now, and I said, this is not going to be a like quick money in, quick money out kind of situation. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. That's not too far. Changing environments, right? Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. And so both Utah and I, but but also the, the core you know leadership team in the organization, we all really care about what we do. There's no other option than just, you know, keeping pushing forward until you find that right. product market fit, that real stickiness. And, and one of my favorite articles is an article from Andreessen from two years ago, which is called Product Market Fit. Mm-hmm. And I keep obsessing over that article because, like, there's this one sentence where it says, like, you can tell when you have product market fit because you can feel it. And mm-hmm. it's like suddenly it's just, you know, it goes. And so I think we're closer now than we've ever been. And I would encourage anyone who wants to build a company to, you know, never give up finding that right combination of of things because you might have a great hardware product, but you might not have the right pricing model, or you might have a great piece of software, but the onboarding is not correct. Or it's oftentimes smaller tweaks. And the most important thing in that journey of, of finding product market fit, I find, is to... A, be open for feedback and like really going out there and, and testing with you. I mean, this is not news, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, but sometimes the most obvious things just need to be repeated over and over and over. And if not to make the people listening feel better, the, to make us feel better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you, even with, you know, the, the podcast format, you probably changed, you know, format. Around. Oh, yeah. We've been doing this for five years now, and I'm not even the first host. So, <laughs> Yes, we've gone through lots of different changes and lots of different things. And part of it, too, is just I think this is true for business. It's a little bit more true for sometimes creative endeavors. But if you're doing something for the long term, you have to enjoy it. And not that change for the sake of change is always the best thing. But sometimes you just need to change. Like you just feel that it's not working right now and you need Mm -hmm. to make a change in order to feel better and more fulfilled in your work and feel like you're headed in the right direction in a way that's sustainable over the long term. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it helps that we're very obsessed of Mm -hmm. making it work. So it's like you just never stop. Yeah. So what's the biggest roadblock or challenge that you're feeling now? 
There's probably a lot of different elements I could talk about right now. So like one thing that I find highly interesting that's not really a roadblock, but something that's that's happening right now, which is implementation of processes and figuring out how to really build a sales organization mm-hmm. <laughs> and workflows that are related to that, which seems trivial, but there's entire companies devoted to that. So like we're, we're using HubSpot Enterprise now. Thanks to, you know, Brian building a great company in Boston where we're able to to use that software. But even with software, you have to kind of, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make the decisions, right? Like, how do you sell? Right. How do you onboard? How do you make sure customers are happy? How do we marry the bigger brand content with, you know, Susie around the corner who's posting a live guitar show she's going to have? Like, how do we think about that? How do we think about reviewing content? Like, are we really supposed to have the authority to review content and then decide what goes, what doesn't go? What are the rules to to do that? So I think these, like, processes are what we're currently working on and finding a good balance between, again, social impact, business model, and then also, like, ethics. One of the things that I feel like in the technology world doesn't get talked about enough where, where you think through, okay, what? how does that impact, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. How does it impact the society? And does it? So, so that's one. It's not a roadblock, but it's like what's on my mind right mm-hmm. now. The other thing that's on my mind is one of the big challenges as, as the founding CEO I find is to both break down tasks into like the next 30 days or maybe even the next week with your leadership team being like, in sync on what the next quarter is going to look like while keeping the like one year view and then like a five year plan. Mm-hmm. When you're in the middle of making sure, you know, the next 30 days, the next quarter is successful, and then you kind of look at, okay, what do I need to achieve in five years? It can be sometimes very daunting. Yeah. And so getting to scale in a spreadsheet mm-hmm. <laughs> is very simple. Uh, getting to scale in the real world, not so easy. Mm-hmm. And so this notion of, you know, what's the right speed? What is healthy growth for, you know, a hardware company? Um, what's a healthy growth for a hardware company that's venture-backed? And how do we go about scale? Do you see yourself as a hardware company or as an advertising company? Ooh, good question. I'd say we have a platform. Uh, <laughs> everybody loves platform. Uh, well, so I love that we have something tangible. Mm-hmm. In fact... When I read Ready Player One, um, which is one of my favorite books, uh, if you guys haven't read it, you should, super nerdy, and I loved it. And it, it's not like it scared me, but it did make me very aware of what is happening with the digitalization of all of our experiences and goods. And uh, if you think about it, you know, we used to have bookshelves. Now we have our books on our on our phones. We used to have CDs there now and, and Spotify. So like if you kind of like take this this visual image of all of our things being like sucked up by the, the internet, you're kind of at the end there in like a room kind of like the matrix that's just white. Mm-hmm. And there's there's nothing, right? There's just white walls. And that's scary to me. And I love the real world and I love the messiness of it and I love the serendipity and I and I love that things are not perfect even though I'm a perfectionist, but the real world's pretty cool, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we innovate in that real world um, and that we don't forget that part. My master thesis actually was about the Internet of Things, so like how do you then get those things kind of back out of the cloud <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but keep some of the benefits that they got 
during their digitalization. I mean, we're an, we're an, we're an Internet of Things company. A lot of people ask me, oh, so are you a clean tech company? Like it, that hmm. I wouldn't really say yeah. so much, even though we do have, you know, small off-grid energy hubs, so to speak. And we use only solar. So, but yes, we are sustainable. Mm-hmm. I think it's a hard question. Like, what's Apple? Hardware company? Software company? Advertising company? Not an advertising company. <laughs> that much, I'm sure of. It sounds like right now you're you're pretty focused on on the signs, but that you are completely open to the idea that you may discover another way to change our environments in the future. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we're all evolving, right? I mean, so one of the things also with the Sufa benches, I mean, now really everybody has a portable battery. Mm-hmm. Like when we started, that wasn't the case. So right. the market changed. Right. And I don't want to be rigid about what we're doing. I think right now is this perfect time perfect fit for, you know, the communities where we are to some extent longing more than ever for community, I would say. Mm -hmm. You can tell by the rise of buildings where there's social spots, like the Troy here in Boston, or I mean, Miami, there's tons of these, you know, Mm -hmm. like of of, of buildings where there's communal areas and, and people come and hang out. People are getting more and more dogs than ever before, I believe, you know, there there's and then they go out and they meet people. Um, like we're human, we need we need social interaction, mm-hmm. and so I think we will always have our values, and I think as we go along, we will evolve. But I'm also really excited right now to really scale yeah. the sign network and scale the the business model associated. Yeah, and the to- Sufa sign can be a part of that local in person community, whether it be a center where people are coming together, and it can be right there, and people can see it and post to it. Post to it exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, would you post on it? I'm curious. Would I post on yeah, it? Oh, yeah. So what? Yeah. What would you post? Well, the obvious thing is that we do a lot of community events and yeah. that kind of thing. So getting the word out about that in a way that's, like you said, very organic. Like you can put it there as people are walking by. So that's the most obvious thing. But I can also see lots of fun ways of interacting with it more personally. Yeah. Um, I even could see it being inside a company, like inside an office building, depending on how it's used. Like, you know, there could be things that we would put on it as well. Yeah. I really like the idea of having more playful elements as well. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're always looking for, you know, interaction designers and people who just want to do tests like the the exhibit that only appears, you know, twice a day. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, kinda cool. Can only see it to specific times or like I, I grew up in Germany, but my dad's American, so I would come to the States every summer and uh, I was an avid subscriber of highlights. <laughs> <laughs> so I read highlights as a kid. And I love outside of the dentist's office. Yeah, outside of the dentist's office, like, and because in the dentist that they all spoke German, so they wouldn't okay. have highlights, right? So like, this was like my goodie from the the U.S. along mm-hmm. with rollerblades and Levi's five hundred one and movies that at the time took a year to get to Germany. So there's there's all these you know kind of like quizzes and right. little you know things, and I just I find them. To be spot the thing wrong, yeah. the two different the differences between two pictures. That's yeah. a big one. My kids get highlights still. So. Yeah, cool. So like now that we can put different posters at different times of the day, mm-hmm. you know, you can optimize for kid time hour versus you know people are out and about going mm-hmm. to bars. Mm-hmm. They might want different things, and that's okay. Sandra, I wish you the best of luck. If people want to get in touch with Sufa or 
are super excited and want to follow along with you or get in touch with you, what's the best ways for them to do that? Well, so first of all, if you ever want to post onto a sign in your city, you can go to talk.sufa.co. If you just want to see what we're up to, we're on Instagram and Facebook at, at mysufa. I'm actually at Cosmonauten, so that's how you can follow me. And other than that, we're super approachable bunch. So uh, our website is sufa.co, and you can reach out to anyone on, on the team. Our emails are all on the on the website, and we're always happy for you know the good, the bad, the ugly, and anything in between. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.